0: Good evening and welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moya Lodi mclean returning after a brief but refreshing holiday and I'm joined tonight by my comrade-in-arms, Sean Fay. Sean, hello.
1: Hi, um, hi Moya. Yeah, you've been on holiday, I've been on holiday, but I see that you're much more tan and I've retained, <laughs> this like ghostly Irish... Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, I have uh, my heritage to thank for this. And I feel like if I dip below this tan level, something very bad's going to happen. So more holidays in the future, perhaps. Now, coming up tonight, a certain media outlet is accused of blocking news stories that offend the Saudi Arabian government. Police forces across the UK have leaked the details of thousands of victims, witnesses, suspects and police staff. Oops. And Scottish First Minister Hamza Youssef has spoken out about the need for men in positions of power to tackle misogyny. Wow, how relevant. So stay tuned for all of that. Let's go to our first story. Rishi Sunak's government has announced today an extra £250 million for the NHS. The money will create 900 new beds in urgent and emergency care in England by January. It's part of the government's NHS recovery plan, pledging a billion pounds for 5,000 new beds over the next two years. But is a lack of beds really the biggest problem in the NHS? On Sky News, Health Minister Will Quince tackled that question. You know, if you talk to doctors
2: about the situations that they're facing and the trouble that they're having getting people through hospitals... It's not the actual physical beds, it's the staff to run those beds. this is, doesn't tackle that, does it? Just providing more beds in hospitals so, so, won't
3: get more people so it, seen. it does. So, so the £250 million is specifically for the 900 additional beds. But actually, the £1 billion announced in January of the Urgent and Emergency Care Recovery Plan includes revenue funding for each of those 30 trusts around staffing. You know, let's not forget, over the past, since last year, we've had an additional 6,000 doctors, 15,000 nurses. And each of those trusts will get funding. They've set out plans about staffing those beds. So they're not just about beds. It's about staff beds in all of those trusts.
0: Let's just take those stats apart, shall we? Quint says that since last year, the health service has had an additional 6,000 doctors and 15,000 nurses. But he doesn't contextualise that in terms of the numbers leaving the NHS. In 2022, a record 40,000 nurses walked away from the NHS and the number of new nurses joining the service was only fractionally higher at 44,000. Meanwhile doctors are applying for certificates to work abroad in almost record numbers. Last year, 7,000 put in applications for certificates of good standing. That's the highest it's been since the 2015 junior doctors industrial dispute and about 1,000 above the average for the previous six years. In 2023, current figures suggest that number will grow even larger. Those figures, 6,000 new doctors and 15,000 new nurses, also don't mean much unless we know what the health service needs. This graph from the BMA shows how England ranks against similar countries in terms of the numbers of doctors per 1,000 people. The UK is third from the bottom of the table at just over three doctors per 1,000 people. England is fourth from last. To get to the middle, where Islanders, is, for example, we'd need about an extra two doctors per thousand people. The BMA handily tells us what that amounts to as a total. In 2022, the NHS needed an extra 42,000 doctors to plug the gap. It's an improvement since 2020, when an extra 50,000 doctors were needed, but there's still a long way to go. The extra billion in funding to the NHS doesn't nearly make up for the way in which the health service has been stealthily defunded since the Tories took power. During austerity, NHS funding was supposedly ring-fenced, meaning it wasn't directly cut – it also didn't grow very much. Meanwhile, the population aged with increasing numbers of people needing treatment. The government has pledged an additional 5,000 beds over two years. But is that enough? Again, we can work that out by comparing our bed stock to similar countries. And the UK is almost at the bottom of this list with around two and a half beds per thousand people. The average is five, which means we'd have to double the number of our beds in order to get there. The total number of NHS beds in England has also been falling. This graph from the King's Fund shows the number of NHS beds in England. We actually have half as many beds now as we did 30 years ago during the Thatcher and major years. The NHS lost around 100,000 beds, That figure flatlined and then fell further during the new Labour government and it's continued to decline over the last decade. In 2010 there were 154,000 NHS beds in England but by last year that figure had dropped by 16,000 leaving just 138,000 beds. Those 5,000 new beds promised by the government over the next two years, they don't even make up for what's been lost since the Tories took power. No surprise then that Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting responded to the news of the Tory policy with this. The Tory's big announcement today is 900 hospital beds. That's just 7% of the 12,000 beds they've cut since 2010. It's a sticking plaster that is nowhere near the fundamental reform the NHS needs. The longer the Conservatives are in office, the longer patients wait." Sean, Beyond the sticking plaster, is there an existential threat facing the NHS beyond pay and so on? Why are so many doctors leaving?
1: Well, I mean, I think so many doctors are leaving because uh, the conditions and and the stress that they've been under for so long throughout the pandemic and even before that has just made it that so many doctors who really wanted to work in the NHS like no longer can really stand to not just because it's not just about pay. It's also about working conditions. It's about waiting times. It's about the the problems when they see, um, you know, like patients suffering and they're not really able to help. That's incredibly demoralizing. And I think when you hear doctors, especially junior doctors talking about leaving, that's often the reasons that they give. I just want to say as well about the sticking plaster thing. Like obviously I agree with West treating, but I have to say, I just don't think Labour is in any position to, um, I don't know, to be the kind of the vanguard of critique of the Tories on NHS policy, considering that Keir Starmer just U-turned on a pledge to, you know, end private provision in the NHS. He said that he was going to do that, and then he's just withdrawn that um, as of July. So, uh, you know, when we look at the landscape in the NHS and the sort of multifaceted problems, yes, there's been the fact that, you know, there's been no real funding and whilst it was ring fenced that essentially led to a stalling in growth and uh, an increase in s- staff stress and the fact that people are leaving but but also you know that there, there is a rot there when essentially so much private profit is involved in our national health service and for the Labour Party to have you know, withdrawn such a key pledge that really should be a core of any kind of progressive politics in this country is depressing and it doesn't make me feel very confident in any pledges that they are currently continuing to make with regards to how they're going to improve the NHS and I, I, I'm unfortunately not convinced that we're not just going to see a continued managed decline.
0: I think it's That knowledge of the likelihood of a managed decline, which is also, as you say, contributing to falling staff numbers who are fleeing for promises of better life, sunnier climbs and less stress and pressure in their day to day in places like Australia. Now, the Tories haven't just overseen falling staff and bed numbers in the NHS. They've also watched NHS waiting lists stack. Up. The overall waiting list has hit a record 7.6 million people waiting for treatment in England. That's roughly one in every seven people. And there are still nearly 400,000 people waiting over a year to be seen. One of the areas where the NHS is doing pretty badly is cancer care. Beginning treatment quickly is a crucial factor in cancer survival rates. One target is the so-called two-week rule. This says that patients suspected of having cancer must see a consultant within two weeks. But now the government is set to scrap it, along with five other targets. Here's Will Quince again explaining why thirds of cancer targets
2: in NHS England to be scrapped. Do you think that's the right thing to do?
3: So this is an announcement due to be made following a consultation. This is not something that the government has led on, but it's NHS England, it's senior oncologists, it's clinicians, and indeed cancer charities have called for this change. No no targets are actually being scrapped. They're being merged into three targets, um, which which I think, and people, um, all of those uh, experts and specialists are saying is the right thing to do, focusing on outcomes and cutting down
2: bureaucracy uh, for clinicians. Mm And you say they've been informed by experts, but but scrapping the targets for patients, for example, they want to see a specialist within two weeks, may make people feel like they're getting a, a weaker service and that this is that it's failed. I
3: think NHS England and oncologists take a, a different view, and they actually think by moving to three targets, including the faster diagnostic, uh, um, faster diagnosis uh, standard, it means that actually people will get a faster diagnosis as a result. As I say, this is not something we're, we're leading on, uh, and actually this is something that the NHS in Wales did back in 2018.
0: What Will Quince is referring to there is the three targets that remain a part of, as he pointed out, the Faster Diagnosis Standard, which aims to speed up the time between a patient going to their G- GP and either getting a diagnosis or the all-clear, and under the new rules, 75% of patients should have a result within 28 days. One of the targets that will be kept concerns the speed with which cancer treatment begins. At the moment, the NHS has a target of beginning treatment for 80% of cancer patients within two months of an urgent GP referral. That target hasn't been hit since 2015 and it hasn't come close to being met since 2018. In June, only 59% of patients were seen in that time frame. So what difference will these changes in the targets make to patients' outcomes? Professor Patricia Price is a clinical oncologist at Imperial College London. On Radio Falls Today programme, she gave her assessment. I think everybody wants
4: um, simpler targets and that's easier for patients to understand. But there we have no evidence that these changes, particularly in the diagnostic end, where they're actually weakening the targets, are actually going to have an effect. But in some ways, it isn't about this. The bottom line is changing the targets don't help patients unless we can treat patients better and quicker. And that means now increasing treatment capacity. So just changing targets, well, it may make a small change, we'll see. But we don't need small changes. We're in the biggest cancer crisis we have. We are now baked in. Four in 10 people do not make that crucial Um, target of 62 days. And that's so important because for every four weeks delay in diagnosis and treatment, there can be a 10% increase in death rate. So just targets alone won't do it. And I think failure is failure, however you measure it.
0: The Labour Party has been sceptical too, with Keir Starmer saying this. What they're doing is moving the goalposts and even where they're keeping targets, they're still not hitting them. Ironic, but correct. On Sky News, this was Shadow Work and Pension Secretary Jonathan Ashworth responding to the changes. The government is talking about changing
2: cancer targets. The government says that its changes are after consultation with cancer charities and specialists. You say that actually some of these targets don't really achieve anything, that they're a bit pointless. Let's just combine them all into three. It's about streamlining care and making cancer care Better for people well, i tell you who's not been achieving anything. It's the Conservatives in their running of the NHS, where we've missed all the cancer targets, or the main cancer targets. Those on a waiting list at record levels. Young people, sometimes in a very desperate state, denied access to mental health care. This is what happens when you run the NHS into the ground. And it's why, in many ways, it's all very well Rishi Sunak saying this is NHS week. He's not come forward with any serious plans or proposals to fix the problems in the NHS. And I think, you know, this really is a last gas government who've, after 13 years, have had their chance.
0: What Ashworth pointed out is that if you weren't aware of this already, these health policy announcements are part of what Rishi Sunak is calling Health Week. Last week was Small Boats Week, which all adds up to the fact that Tories are doing this incredibly trite and patronising series of themed weeks, which all it seems to do is highlight their ongoing failures. I think something like six people died in the channel at the end of Small Boats Week, which sums it up. And now we're looking at them scrapping targets for cancer patients and ongoing failures within the NHS and we're expected to clap and just forget what led to all this in the first place. Uh, The short-term attempts to turn around 13 years of rot is not going to work. It just leaves everyone more demoralized let Let's go to our next story. Police forces across the UK are having some IT trouble. This month, four different police forces have admitted accidentally publicly publishing sensitive data in separate data leaks. They range from the farcical to the life-threatening. The most serious of these leaks took place last week when the police service of Northern Ireland presided over a, quote, industrial-scale data breach. Details about 10,000 serving PSNI employees were accidentally shared in response to a freedom of information request. These included the surnames and first initials of PSNI staff, where they're based, and the unit they work in, including intelligence and surveillance units. And the data was reportedly publicly available for up to three weeks. Now the political situation in Northern Ireland makes this a very dangerous own goal for the PSNI. On Monday the British PSNI Chief Constable Simon Byrne who was born in Surrey take what you want from that gave this statement.
3: We are now confident that the workforce data set is in the hands of dissident republicans and it's therefore a planning assumption that they will use this list to generate fear and uncertainty as well as intimidating or targeting officers and staff. I won't go into detail for operational reasons, but we are working round the clock to assess this risk and take measures to mitigate it.
0: The same day, Sinn Féin's policing spokesperson, Gerry Kelly, said a redacted version of the document had been posted outside the political party's office on the infamous Falls Road in Belfast. The document was accompanied by a picture of Kelly and a message which read, quote, Gerry, We know who your mates are. Kelly said the stunt was a, quote, obvious attempt to intimidate him. He continued. Sinn Féin represents the vast majority of people in the nationalist community and we will certainly not be intimidated by dissident groups who have virtually no support and who offer nothing but disruption and threats in an attempt to make themselves relevant. They should disband and end their anti-community activities. Revelations around other policing leaks in the wake of the PSNI disaster have slightly lower stakes, but have still proved a pretty serious headache for respective police forces. Last week, The Guardian uncovered that Cumbria Police had published the names and salaries and allowances of every every one of its more than 2,000 employees back in March. Now, this data leak wasn't publicised at the time. In a statement, they said this. Cumbria Constabulary became aware of a data breach on Monday the 6th of March 2023 where information about the pay and allowances of every police officer and police staff roles as of 31st of March 2022 was uploaded to the Constabulary's website which was a human error. The pay and allowance data also included names and position however did not contain information about where the posts were deployed from or personal details such as date of birth and address. The data breach was referred to the Information Commissioner's Office, but the ICO determined no further action was necessary. A lucky decision for Cumbria Police, but I imagine there's a lot of infighting now. Everyone knows exactly what the other person is being paid. But... The latest data breach this week has seen two police forces admit that they've leaked sensitive information of well over a thousand crime victims, witnesses and suspects. Norfolk and Suffolk police forces have said, quote, a technical issue led to raw data, including personal identifiable information, be included in FOI responses issued between 2021 and 2022. However, both Forces say they found no evidence the files, which were hidden, were accessed by anyone outside of policing. The ICO has now placed both Norfolk and Suffolk constabularies under formal investigation, which could end in a fine. Of course, the implications of this being a historic breach is that in the wake of the PSNI leak, other forces may have begun reviewing what data they've accidentally shared, which is why we're getting so many of these stories and could mean that we're getting a lot more of them imminently. So I have a feeling this topic isn't going away anytime sooner. We'll be hearing a lot more about police forces that can't keep a handle on their data. But for now, we've got a quick break. And when we'll be back, we'll be discussing allegations facing Vice News. So stay tuned. Our planet is wounded. As extreme weather events rage across the globe, the mainstream media either acts as if no one is to blame or flat out denies it's happening.
2: We don't want to live less good lives because of some lunatic climate nonsense hysteria from an eco-cult telling us the
0: world's on fire. But here at Navarro Media we expose climate villains. According to Julie Hartley-Brew, we should just keep calm and carry on. Sunak doesn't want to talk about the environment. We analyse the climate movement and how it's changing and explore what we can do to adapt to
2: climate breakdown.
1: We have to act now.
2: In the face of obscene wealth and influence, we
0: need people-powered media. If you can, join our regular supporters and donate one hour's wage per month or whatever you can afford at navaramediacom support. We can't do this without you. That's right. Ash is correct. We are funded by you. Just to reiterate that link one more time is navarramedia.com/support and you can find it in the description box below. Let's go on to our next story which is all about how media is funded. Promise we didn't set this up. Troubled media company Vice has been accused of blocking news stories that could offend the Saudi Arabian government. Now, these allegations follow the agreement of a lucrative new partnership between Vice and media publisher NBC, which is 60% owned by the Gulf state. An exclusive Guardian report details examples of Vice spiking or pulling content that covers controversial aspects of the Saudi regime. Freelance writer John Lubbock spoke to The Guardian about a vice report he worked on about young Saudis campaigning for transgender rights. Lubbock says the piece was, quote, actively welcomed by vice editors, but publication was then repeatedly postponed and cancelled last minute. Multiple vice sources told The Guardian the article was pulled after an intervention by senior vice staff, who thought it could endanger employees working in Saudi Arabia. Lubbock thinks this is only part of the story, though. He says this. I was told by editors there that the story was delayed because they had a team of people in Saudi Arabia, but this seems this may not have been true or only part of the story. Bankruptcy has already affected the publication's reputation, but if they're now seen as shying away from difficult stories due to their ownership, it's really the final nail in the coffin of their countercultural image. I think the constant list of things that you can buy on Vice News is probably the final nail in the coffin of the countercultural image, but we won't quibble. In another example of self-censorship, a Vice World News film examining Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was deleted from the internet. Now, Vice sources who spoke to the Guardian said the removal was, quote, partly attributed to safety concerns regarding staff in Saudi Arabia. Note, only partly. Vice previously paused its work in Saudi Arabia after the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, but in the wake of repeated financial problems, including bankruptcy, the company has expanded its relationship with the country. And in Vice's London office, a photograph of the Sarah Everett Memorial protest has reportedly been removed and replaced by a giant map of Saudi Arabia by employees who are working on this joint venture. Vice is also receiving, quote, millions of dollars via its advertising subsidiary Virtue to promote Saudi Arabia internationally. The Vice Partnership is part of Saudi Arabia's push into taking a leading role in global sports and culture. In the past few years, the country has managed to strong arm its way into partially controlling elite golf. If you are not aware of its beef with the PGA, look it up. Very entertaining, but also demoralising. It's also bought the Premier League team Newcastle United and has stirred up debate by bringing some of the world's top footballers and managers to its professional league. Sean, what does Vice's alliance with Saudi Arabia and its content censorship Tell us about the fortunes of media.
1: Nothing that we don't already know, and I'm sure that uh, Navarra Media um, are acutely aware of the landscape in which they're trying to operate and distinguish themselves. But I think uh, the sort of increasing decline of media into uh, advertorial, uh, into kind of um, PR Rather than um, perhaps journalism or the independence that we associate with journalism, you know, is something that we've been seeing across the board. When it's not just um, turning into sort of content flip over by AI, the problem here is that you know Vice Vice has been in trouble for some time, uh, and I suppose out of desperation, the the company or the shareholders they will be looking to um, continue to try and save the company financially and in doing so they've kind of yeah, lost the vision perhaps of it being um, yeah a company that is for independent journalism and of course there is something really wrong if journalistic integrity is being interfered with allegedly um based on commercial interests in any media organization there's something very warped about a media landscape where the big actors and vice you know is new media but it is one of the larger newer conglomerates is that if we can't trust legacy media to be free um from commercial interests and we can't trust new media it's a bit of a grim landscape
0: one argument i think lots of people make uh is that if you choose to be particularly outraged by Saudi interest in the media, um, then that's xenophobic because Rupert Murdoch is right there. What do you make of this?
1: Uh, I feel like that's nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that just feels like a what about vibe, doesn't it? I mean, like, no, I mean, the question, like, actually, I I think most people that would be uh, somewhat alarmed by this, if it's true, are exactly the sort of people that me, me, I <laughs> would be complaining about Rupert Murdoch all the time. I mean, I hate Rupert Murdoch and the Murdoch media. It's, you know, obviously, I think there can be, certainly there can be, um, you know, conspiracy theory about control of the media, et cetera. And that, and that can go down a sort of a certain dark path. But I think in general, when you're saying that on principle, it doesn't really matter who it is, but when it is, you know, wealthy um Basis with a kind of disregard for the human rights of journalists, you know, alongside anyone else uh, who are taking over media companies. And we know that the Saudi Arabian government has a very, very, um, I don't know, reckless view of human, uh, human rights and protecting the rights of journalists, not, you know, reckless with their lives. And certainly a disregard for journalistic freedom. So I think it's a completely valid concern. It's not really about the particular actor, it is about the principle. And that's the same whether in some ways, I think, you know, Rupert Murdoch, it's like it can be actually much more familiar to us um, because we're aware of the fact that, you know, Rupert Murdoch doesn't quite uh hide necessarily quite a clear agenda. Um, nor do the politicians in our country that that chum up to him really.
0: Pretty interesting uh, opinion piece in the NYT the other day, which was talking about the inequality that is developing between those who are able and willing to pay for their news from various news stores. Often what you'd call quality news is now paywalled. And those who are either not able or not willing and the fact that usually they're the people who most need good quality news and how that is changing the landscape of politics or where you sit. And it's it's fascinating if you look at a lot of these, I guess, places that try to do, qual- what first of all, you know, like the BuzzFeeds, the HuffPosts, etc., these, these outlets that initially had a lot of funding, said we're going to disrupt the entire market, we're going to manage to make this model work where we have free digital news and the the value of knowledge here is almost zero. Um, but it's still going to be really great stuff and we're going to do this lighthearted, almost you know, the content versus the actual news reporting. And now you look at them and because all the investors have called in their money and said, actually, where's our profit? Then the, the lighthearted stuff has stayed. And the quality news reporting has been killed in its entirety. Where's BuzzFeed's news operation now? The Pulitzer winning team, they've been decimated. And instead you get memos about the fact they're going to be moving to an AI-driven content. And so the people who can't pay for news or don't want to pay for news are going to end up with that as the first sort of port of call, this SEO-driven stuff whereas people who are willing to pay for news are going to get a very different uh, view of the world and what's going on in it, which I thought was a really, really interesting article. And I will try and dig up the uh, author of it so that I can share it and have a paywall free link for people who want to. I put that on my social media. Let's move on to our next story. Scotland's First Minister, Hamza Youssef, has spoken out against misogyny. Very brave. Writing in The Guardian, he tackled the issue in an article headlined like this. Misogynists like Andrew Tate hold sway over thousands of men and boys. Male leaders like me must address that. In the article, Youssef writes this. Men have made our communities feel far too unsafe for far too many women. As First Minister of Scotland, but more importantly... As a father of two girls, this is not a situation I am prepared to simply accept. Let's be clear, this is not a situation unique to the U- to Scotland or the UK. Women and girls, the world over, are suffering due to the actions of men. Barely a week goes by without a distressing report in the newspapers or on our television screens about a woman being the victim of harassment, stalking, abuse, violence, rape, or murder. The situation facing women and girls across the world terrifies me. We see abortion rights under attack here in Scotland, as well as across the world, with the decision to reverse Roe versus Wade in the US and attacks on girls' right to education in Afghanistan. So, what's to be done about all that? Here's what Yusuf suggests. Whether in politics, in the office or on the work site, in school, the pub or in our own living rooms, we can all do more as men to challenge problematic behaviour among our friends, colleagues and family members. But it is not enough to pontificate and lecture. A pious approach to tackling toxic masculinity will not solve this issue, nor most crucially will it make women feel safer. While the influence and grip that celebrity misogynists such as Andrew Tate hold over thousands of young men and boys in Scotland should make us feel all uneasy, simply finger-wagging is not the answer. If that is our only response, then we'll continue to fail to understand why men and young boys gravitate toward the Tates of the world and we'll fail to understand what lies behind the anger. Okay, what lies behind the anger? Let's find out. Well, unfortunately Yusuf doesn't say, but he has a prescription for how to fix it anyway. As men, we must listen. We must learn, but we must also demonstrate what a positive male identity looks like to young boys and to other men. Frankly, there is not a grown man in the country today who has not been guilty of problematic behaviour, actions or words towards women in some form. I am no different, like all men I have had to reflect on my own behaviour and language over the years. Without doubt, in my young years, I will have told a misogynistic joke at the expense of women or not to challenge behaviour that was demeaning to women." We must ask men to reflect, to be honest, and be willing to make the necessary changes in their attitudes and join a global movement of men who want to stand up and become positive role models for their sons, grandsons, nephews, friends, and colleagues. On the one hand, I guess great that Hamza Yusuf is writing about misogyny openly, as, as he points out, one of those rare male leaders in the world. On the other, there is not one mention of patriarchy in this entire piece not one. A good start to tackling it. I think we can all agree. Sean, why is he calling it toxic masculinity? What did you make of that? It's a tough one, isn't it? Because, in fairness, I do think it.
1: I, I'm not. I'm not one to love to congratulate men for <laughs> for just referencing misogyny, but I think. Um, I do think it's still a pretty rare intervention for someone that's at quite a senior political level. I I think what we have to take stock of is that. One of the things that I've always um, noticed in, in a lot of the work that I've done on issues of gender or um, yeah, gender based violence is that we haven't we haven't ever quite al- alighted on the right way to actually speak to boys and men about this. And, you know, there is a difference between perhaps the language of feminism that is consciousness raising for women and girls Um but I think what has always been sort of somewhat lacking, and we haven't, you know, I don't, I don't think there's any school of feminism that has got this right because we are still living in a, in a hugely misogynistic culture, and particularly amongst young people, um, I think there is there is work to be done here, and I sort of want to applaud it. However, um, yeah, I mean, realistically, where is the policy pledges? Where is where is the concrete action? You know, a kind of, um, I don't know, a kind of um, admission or public confession that perhaps he told a sexist joke here and there when he's younger, you know, is all well and good. But I think the, the time, the kind of lip service to that has passed and we need to be thinking about whether or not there is actually a serious, has there ever been a serious government action plan in any constituent nation of the UK to tackle misogyny? Um, amongst children and you know people in school and I, and I think there hasn't and I, w- I would like to see a bit more uh steadfast sort of policy commitments in that regard uh and I yeah I think there are parts lacking too about where the, the anger comes from yes patriarchy um I also think when you're when you start to mention like misogynistic celebrities like Andrew Tate uh there, there is a real lack of understanding, I think, about what his the, the appeal of him is towards um, particularly young boys and men. Um, a lot of his fans are teenagers. And I think that is a huge problem that probably is going to be quite uncomfortable for a lot of adults. Because it's not as simple as just saying, essentially, a male child is just a misogynist and condemning him. You're going to have to understand the society that produces the kind of attitudes towards women that make someone like Andrew Tate attractive. And that is going to go much deeper and take generations. And so I would like to see something that's quite realistic about the scale of the task at hand. And I also think, you know, we can't really just talk about misogyny as attitudes. We, we can't talk about misogyny as divorced from the fact that, like, uh, w- when we talk about women's economic status, financial independence of women, particularly poorer women, particularly women who are reliant on, you know, welfare benefits, single mothers, etc. You know, we we should judge a society by how it treats women at the margins of the poorest and most disadvantaged women. And so it's not just about misogyny as in really toxic attitudes and toxic masculinity. It's also a little bit of socialist feminism in there that we need to talk about how we might liberate women economically. and And I think I'm not sure that an, uh, you know, uh, SNP, Prime Minister is that that interested in that conversation.
0: Yeah, I, I have another question for you, but I just wanted to say that I think someone like Andrew Tate, he tells young men they're worms. He tells them that they are nothing unless, and they will only be something if they begin to partake in the total domination of people around them, whether that's other men or that's women. Women are sort of collateral in it. And I I think that what he speaks to and what he's, what the gap, the void that he fills is a knowledge that young men, young teenagers have, that patriarchy emotionally castrates them, that it forces them into certain shapes. And they know there's something wrong with this. They know that there's a spiritual void at the heart of patriarchy, but because we don't have the language and... The widespread knowledge to interrogate that and try and turn, you know, masculinity from something that is just synonymous with patriarchy into what I would call a feminist masculinity. Someone might want to call it humanist masculinity, another form of masculinity, the positive type of masculinity, so that masculinity isn't just coded as this, you know, patriarchal thing, because they're separate concepts altogether. Instead of that, then we don't we don't have the sort of widespread language of that we don't have the widespread programs, of that we don't have the alternatives. So what people are given is this like really. I guess, militaristic, dominant, patriarchal form of masculinity. And Andrew Tent says, double down, double down. You feel bad, don't worry. If you double down, you can push through and you will feel fine. That is what he's giving because we don't have these alternatives there. Because I think, I would say, feminism has failed to properly address what positive masculinity could look like um, because we've been afraid of it for so long. Maybe I've read too much Bell Hooks. I don't know. Um, I would also say with Hamza Yusaf, do you think there's other motivations behind writing this? Obviously, in Scotland at the moment, there is massive sort of chatter about gender. You've got the uh, very large gender-critical brigade looking for any excuse to call anyone a misogynist who supports the rights of trans individuals. Do you think this is him trying to reframe that conversation completely and say, well, let's focus on, like, actual misogyny over here it was I did think it was interesting that he didn't mention trans women within this piece when that's obviously such a large part of misogyny we see nowadays um well to quote B. Moyer I'm glad you brought it up
1: I, <laughs> I, I, um, I think that's a big part of the motivation behind this piece I think um when you see that the SNP has been bitterly divided and his predecessor Nicola Sturgeon was uh, perhaps wounded, if you know. Obviously, there were other reasons for her departure from power, but it certainly was one of the most, you know, during such a long tenure. During her tenure covering the pandemic, one of the things that perhaps wounded her the most was her position on on trans rights. And I think this, the accusations of misogyny, which I have to say, you know, I, I use within that context in a very specific way misogyny against trans women very rarely recognized um transphobia tends to be recognized sometimes but people don't tend to talk about misogyny against trans women um, and and so i think i think this is a strategic move that he is aware that he is a man and uh, in this so-called debate um if you are a male politician in some ways you don't even have the perhaps cover of Being a cisgender woman who, um, as Nicola Sturgeon did, she could say, I am a woman, I am a feminist, is that there is uh, always a risk that as a man, you're going to be told that you're mansplaining, that you're speaking over women, that you are a misogynist if you support trans people's right to uh, live in dignity, access healthcare, have gender recognition by the state. Um, And so I think he's trying to head that off. I think he's trying to um, get ahead of that by. being proactive as uh, as a sort of male feminist politician is it a little bit self-serving sure <laughs> um uh but i i can sort of understand why if you were him you would do this because um all politicians are trying to find a way around um a debate that the terms of which are so bad faith they do suck up a lot of airtime and um yeah, I would like to see some follow-up, some, follow some real commitment to this, but I do have to question whether or not this is, in fact, um, more about his reputation and um, a defensive move against attacks from gender-critical voices within the SNP.
0: I fear that the, uh, the master's tools will not liberate us all, and there's nothing like the ultimate master's tool, such as a, another man in a position of political power. But maybe I'll be proved wrong. Let's just check some comments briefly on that story. We've got Satnav saying with £5, pounds, thank you very much, male PSA, be the light, be the beacon for how other men and youth to look to. It's that simple how we flip this. I think that's admirable. And thank you for the £5. Pounds. I'm not sure it's going to be that simple. I think if we individualise this, then we're never going to get out. It has to be a concerted group effort. And we can all start by reading The Wheel to Change by Bell Hooks. That's an official recommendation. Uh, And in the YouTube chat, Shiny Warm says, I did loads of work on masculinity with young men back in the early 80s. We've actually gone backwards as youth work has been defunded and feminism demonized by the patriarchy. Never underestimate how much the lack of resources and cuts uh, accelerates uh, the, the worst aspects of things like patriarchy. It makes people smaller, meaner, more likely to enter what Hobbes, i guess would call a state of war um and with this you're always protecting your patch the urge to dominate is all over and patriarchy feeds off domination and if you think it's just men that engage in patriarchy it's not at all patriarchy would probably still be upstanding but patriarchy as a system is something that everybody is engaged in uh women, men, people of all gender orientations, even if they don't realise that your gender does not protect you from not engaging in patriarchy, only actually analysing, interrogating what patriarchy is, does that. Let's move on to our next story. Rishi Sunak has actually come out and commented on the giant floating nightmare prison barge and the conditions that are ravaging the poor migrants who are being forced to stay there. Yes, we're talking about the Bibby Stockholm. Uh, so, this is a story that's come in from The Guardian, and Rishi Sunak says he's committed to housing asylum seekers on Bibi Stockholm. Uh, he's insisted his government is committed to its controversial plans to house asylum seekers on a barge after a series of setbacks, which have fl- frustrated a flagship, pun clearly intended, stop the boats policy. So, in his first comments, since people were due to be housed in the Bibby Stockholm were removed from the vessel because traces of Legionella bacteria found in the water supply, Sunak has argued the approach was fairer for the taxpayer than putting up asylum seekers in hotels. This is what he said. It is right we go through all the checks and procedures to ensure the well-being and health of the people being housed on the barge classic Rishi Sunak, not really saying that much, but he said has doubled down on that policy. Someone this today tweeted something along the lines of it doesn't feel like Rishi Sunak is in charge. It doesn't feel like anyone's in charge. It feels like a TV has been wheeled in and we're just watching the screen like you had at the end of term. Sean, what do you make of Rishi Sunak in his own elusive little way, doubling down on this Bibby Stockholm barge policy?
1: I mean, I just think it's horrifying. I think (laughs) on a you know, on a personal level, just when uh, the inhumanity that we are seeing in British public life and political life, I often think it can't get worse. Um, this has often honestly took my breath away. And what we are seeing, the fact that people are warning and warning, they warned about the outbreak of Legionnaire's disease, you know, the fact that that's not being heeded and the fact that, uh, in fact, There is this sort of doubling down, this like show of so-called strength, which in fact just to be seems to be a show of cruelty and malice. is really, really uh, depressing. And I guess the only thing I can think is that the Tories are a lost cause. This is truly like a government (laughs) comprised of. It's just there's no other word for it other than evil. And what I would like to see, what is more concerning to me now, is the fact that I want opposition parties. Uh, labor of course but all opposition parties to be calling this what it is to not just describe um, our entire uh, policy towards migration towards asylum as like critiquing it on the grounds of efficiency or critiquing it but actually to start talking about it in moral and ethical terms because this is like a violation of human dignity it's one of those things that like <laughs> when you go around and see museums of some of the worst atrocities that humanity can do, and you're like, how could people do this to one another? This, to me, is up there with that. And I think everyone in political life that has a platform in this country that doesn't name that is also complicit um, beyond the the Tory government themselves.
0: I really want to finish on some sort of uh, cheerful story, but first let's go back to the comments. Also, if anyone has a cheerful story, or a line of something that they can just send us, a bit of positivity, comments, hashtag, whatever. Please send it to me. I want, to, I want us to end on some sort of up. But yeah, so back on the misogyny story with an amazing £20 super chat. Thank you so much. The Novice says there needs to be a commission into how to facilitate and fund more healthy spaces for men and boys that encourage community as well as general education on institutional patriarchy, not an end solution, obviously. May I just broaden that and just say... Encourage community in general. I think the fragmentation of community is one of the things that again further fuels the entrenchment of patriarchy. These community spaces where we can interact with one another as human beings and not these polarized, wow, polarized figures on, I don't know, the internet. That is so vital to creating a pushback to the worst impacts of patriarchy. Um, in terms of Good news stories. How about this? We reported on this yesterday. Manchester, Greater Manchester Police have dropped a discriminatory policy uh, that bans people from attending carnival. We did reporting on this last year and we found that through an FOI request, black people were eight times more likely to be banned from Manchester carnival than white individuals. This practice has been going on since 2006. It was uncovered by the Northern Police Monitoring Project and Kids of Colour. And now this year, the carnival that just took place, Manchester police confirmed that they would no longer be issuing bans. There you go. A little bit of coalition work good navarra reporting and people power sean thank you so much for joining me tonight it was a pretty heavy show i'd next time you are on, i'm going to make sure that we have at least one bit of positivity but i think we tackle all the big topics
1: yeah no problem no you know whatever it's <laughs> the summer's been a washout i'm i'm back from holiday and we we got into it you know there'll be time for lightness come winter i'm sure <laughs> <laughs>
0: In the bleak midwinter, we will be shining a light. But in the damp, soggy summer, I'm afraid this is what you're getting at the moment. Thank you so much, everyone, for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you have been watching Navarra Media. Good night.
4: This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramediacom support.